It's that time of the year. It's spring. It's officially spring. And this is the point of spring training where every fan base thinks, hey, maybe this could be our year. Maybe every franchise should go into this year with that sense of optimism. Yes, including the Orioles. And today we're going to be bringing on Connor Newcomb from Locked On Orioles to, let's just say, answer some of my listener questions and talk about these bird days. This is Locked On MLB. You are Locked On MLB. Your daily MLB podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Locked On MLB, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. This is the daily podcast. We talk about all the Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. You can tell right there from my lower third if you're watching me on the YouTubes. Please feel free to call me Sully. Thanks so much for making Locked On MLB your first listen as we're available on your free podcasting catchers and do us a favor if you want to give us a nice review if you like our show eh, tell your friends about it and tell your friends about all the great shows on the lockdown podcast network where it truly is your team every day and tell your smart device to play podcast locked on mlb you can follow this show on twitter and at instagram at locked on mlb pods i'm your pal sully you can tell right there if you want to follow me on twitter I'm at Sully Baseball there, Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. So, yeah, I've been getting ready for the season. Spring training is coming along, and I've I've gotten a few, I mean, how do I say this? I've got a few interesting uh, uh, comments, both here on, on the YouTube page and the Apple Podcast page, where sometimes, uh, how do I say this? I've been accused of ignoring some of the teams out there. I have a very, very passionate listener. Where, where is he right now? He has a very uh, colorful, jazzy name. Oh, I just had it up here, and I just lost it. Forgive me. Um, it is Panorama Jazz Brass Band. And let me tell you something. I want to have the Panorama Jazz Brass Band write the new score for Locked On MLB because it's going to be great. Um, he's... Uh, he, uh, ben is the fellow's name, has asked me a couple times why I don't talk about the Baltimore Orioles. Why not? And uh, I'm going to bring aboard our guest for today, and I'm going to read to him one of the comments he gave, because I think it will incite some, some conversation, because I don't want to ignore uh, teams. I really don't. Uh, but I will say one thing. We are now a quarter of a century where the Orioles have had four winning seasons in that quarter of a century, which is really weird because when I was growing up, the Baltimore Orioles were one of the marquee franchises in baseball. But hey, enough depressing Baltimore Oriole fans with that bit of information. It might very well be time for me to be bringing on my very special guest who has been part of this podcast and also was part of the Boulder Minute podcast that I hosted. And bring on board. He's the host of Locked On Orioles. He's the one who pulled the short straw and has to cover the Orioles all year. Hey, it's Connor Newcomb. How you doing, man? 
I'm doing great. You know, that that uh, that can be the short straw at times. And uh, it was definitely jarring to hear the four winning seasons in a quarter century. And immediately your mind goes to, that can't be right. And then you remember back, I remember back to my lifetime as an Orioles fan, which is four winning seasons. And there, we, there you have it. There you have it. I mean, my earliest, I'm, I'm a generation older than you. My earliest memories, my earliest, the earliest World Series I have a memory of watching it's the 1979 World Series, and I and I vivid memories of that World Series. Ironically, I watched it on a black and white television uh, because it's such a colorful World Series. Uh, but you know, there was a period of time between 1966 and 1983 where the Orioles had more winning seasons than the Yankees, made more postseason appearances than the Yankees, won as many World Series as the Yankees in that stretch, and were really, in so many ways, the model franchise, which is bizarre, not only because of what has happened recently, but because they were they were originally the St. Louis Browns, who were one of the most hapless franchises in the history of baseball, who then moved to Baltimore and for so many years became a model team. Um, it's not been a pretty few years it's and I think Ubaldo Jimenez threw the final meaningful Baltimore pitch um and that was what was that was 2016. a lot's happened since 2016. yeah so uh Connor I'm not trying to you know pour salt on your wound here but uh how you been I, I'm you know I'm I'm surprised that in that whole spiel right there you know Jeffrey Meyer's name didn't even get mentioned if you want to just keep keep piling it on but uh you know there is uh there is positivity yeah not at the major league level for the Orioles but there's still plenty to get listeners excited for a daily podcast about the Orioles but at the end of the day I mean you know you look at the O's and and you could argue I mean that almost 20 year stretch were they the best franchise in baseball in terms of on the field play I mean under Earl Weaver maybe well you could make a very compelling argument that Earl Weaver had the greatest stretch for a manager in baseball history in that time, which, by the way, one of the strangest things about that is the fact that he won a grand total of one World Series as the manager. Although I think it comes with a little bit of a caveat because he, I mean, no offense to the late Joe Altabelli, who managed the 1983 World Series. It was Earl's team. That was Earl's team. I mean, again, uh, I'm not taking anything, Joe Altabelli, baseball lifer, and the inspiration for the character of Skip in Bull Durham, uh, and who was played brilliantly by the late Trey Wilson, the whole lollygagger scene, you know, he's an incredible character in film history. And those of you who know me know that's my favorite baseball movie of all time. I devoted a whole podcast to it, but I, I digress. Uh, but, they, you know, they went, they had a, a pipeline of great players through their, that come up through their system, they made really smart trades along the way. They, they seem to make all the right moves uh, in terms of player development and in terms of knowing when to give up on a player and bring in, like when they dealt uh, L. Ron Hendricks and Ken Holtzman to the Yankees, that brought them Scott McGregor and Rick Dempsey, who are key members of the team that went on to win the World Series in, uh, went to, to two World Series in 79 and 83. In fact, Scott McGregor was on the mound when they clinched the World Series, and the MVP was Rick Dempsey. Uh, you saw they made great moves along the way. Uh, just 
that they stayed relevant. And it's really, it was astonishing when they stopped being relevant. It was almost, you know, it, it, it almost was like a record scratch. And, you know, so, and, and so few memorable games have been played in Camden Yards, save for the Ripken game and a handful of playoff games here or there, which is surreal because the, that's such a memorable stadium. Yeah. I mean, you think about the biggest games at Camden Yards. I mean, 21-31 is still number one, and that's just a regular season close. game. Not even close. For a non-playoff team, and it was an all-time record that's never going to be broken again. But again, non-playoff team in September in a regular season game is still the biggest game at Camden Yards. I mean, you could argue if you put together maybe like a top 15 list, you know, the opening game of Camden Yards, just because of the hoopla around it and, you know, Sutcliffe throwing the the complete game, that might be in that list. And for as long as that ballpark's been around, your biggest game shouldn't just be an opening day game when you open the ballpark. But that's probably on that list somewhere because they just haven't had the moments. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we all could be sure that the Orioles will eventually turn things around and eventually put a good team on the field. But uh, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I think it is one of the easiest bets in the world you could make that the Orioles are not making the postseason this year in this division and with a payroll only slightly larger than the payroll of the Locked On podcast hosts currently at this time. By the way, if you want to make any bets, go to betonline.net. You know, it's that time of year again. College basketball tournament is upon us. In the latest odds, contests, and player props, BetOnline is the number one. BetOnline.net is the number one source for all your sports betting needs and info. BetOnline remains the best spot for all your sports scores podcasts and news this season it's not just basketball bet online is your continued source for all your sporting wagering information needs including live betting and your favorite las vegas casino games head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action bet online is where the game starts by the way thanks so much for making lockdown mlb your first listen make lockdown orioles your second listen and while you're at it your third listen as you're listening all day should be locked on MLB prospects. Host Lindsey Crosby is a prospect encyclopedia, and it's going deep on the MLB stars tomorrow. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. And I bet some of the MLB stars of tomorrow are members of the Baltimore Orioles organization. And, you know, when you draft with the number one or the number two pick for a bunch of years, you hope you found the next Ripken, Eddie Murray, at least your next Rich Dower. And there are some names that are coming up to the Orioles organization. And there's one big name that I cannot pronounce. He is the catcher who was the number one pick overall. I know his first name is Adley. And let me see if I can get it. Rutschman? That is correct. We've got a winner. Welcome to Lockdown Rutschman, where we talk about Adley Rutschman five days a week, sponsored by Built Bar. Um, all right, look at that. I got it. I got it. There you go. So, I mean, there are a lot of John the Baptists out there screaming that this is going to be the next great star in Orioles history. And, uh, you know, I would hate to think that we're going to uh, actually bench Robinson Chirinos uh, as the starting catcher for the Baltimore Orioles. But make Oriole fans feel good. And let us know what, what they should feel about Adley as he's coming up through the system. Well, obviously, as you said, number one overall pick 
2019, set the record for largest bonus in the draft at that point. Obviously, it's been broken since then, but got over $8 million out of Oregon State. He is the guy. He has been you know, a top 10 prospect since he's been drafted. He's now the number one pretty much consensus prospect around baseball. I know Bobby Witt from Kansas City has a lot of love as well, but I mean, he's ready. That's the other thing, too. He is going to be with the Orioles early this season. Now, going into this year, it was the, will they manipulate his service time? Will they hold him down? Well, he ended up with a little bit of a triceps injury. So he's out for a couple of weeks. He's not going to be ready for opening day. He's going to be ready more mid-April. So we'll probably see him then. But this is a switch-hitting catcher who is an elite defensive catcher, great arm, great pitch framer, works with pitchers fantastically, who is also one of the best hitters that the Orioles have ever had in their farm system. A switch hitter who it's not like, you know, he's got a, a big drop off to one side of the plate. He hits for power. He hits for average from each side. He's got, you know, more speed than you would think for a catcher. And he has the ability to play some first base, which means they can give him a rest behind the plate, which is maybe going to be the biggest thing early in his career to, you know, keep him catching for as long as they can in his career. You know, we see Buster Posey retire at this point, still playing really well, just because, you know, I'm sure some of it had to do with, catching just takes it out of you but you know he's such a complete hitter already he's 24 years old he's ready for the big leagues and he steps in he becomes the starting catcher this year he's the number one prospect in baseball and I mean really the hope is for Rutschman that the Orioles have a many-time all-star potential MVP candidate and the guy that they are going to build hopefully this next good Orioles team around now I'm right now at MLB.com's list of the the top prospects and if nothing else look i'm always a sucker for the prospect listings and i've done this ever since i was a kid i used to pour over baseball america and anytime a prospect was listed I said, oh my god all of these stats are going to translate in the major leagues um but uh you could have your grayson rodriguez uh your who's a double a pitcher uh you have your gunner henderson's who's and your colton Cowser. If nothing else, these are cool names. You got Adley, you got Grayson, you got Gunner, you got Colton. Um, I don't know how many of these are going to pan out. Uh, they're already in the major roster is one of the most unfortunately named prospects I've ever seen, which is D.L. Hall. You know, you, oh, gee, I wonder if he's going to have injury issues. Would, I, would um, it surprise you if I told you that he missed uh, two-thirds of last season with an know, injury? Even though it should – now it's I.L., so <laughs> that's I mean, true. I, it's, we have to, we have to, but I mean, we're, it's going to take us a while to get used to that. Kind of like I'm going to be still calling the team in Cleveland, the Indians for the next two or three years there. Um, but okay. You have Adley up there who on the team right now. Do you see if, if Adley is going to be your Adley workman is going to be the centerpiece of the team uh, moving forward. Um, you know, are, are people like, um, Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle, are they long-term pieces that are going to contribute, or are they there as placeholders waiting for some of the other teams, other players who are coming up? Yeah, Cedric Mullins, I mean, if you watched him last year, I mean, first All-Star season, hits leadoff in the All-Star game for the American League, kept mm -hmm. it going in the second half. I mean, he's the guy, and, and you know, he's been in the big leagues since 2018, but last yep. year was his first full big league season where he was in the lineup every day and he produced very, very well. He stopped switch hitting 
He had terrible numbers right-handed, and he just said, I'm done with it. Came into last year just hitting left-handed, and all of a sudden, there he goes to an all-star season. And he's still pretty young, and you know he's still got plenty of years left before he becomes a free agent. He's the center fielder. They've got that spot figured out at this point as long as Mullins. You know, he doesn't have to replicate what he did last year because that was an incredible season. But come close to that, and you've got an easy center fielder. After that, you mentioned Ryan Mountcastle. I mean, he's a guy who was a you know top prospect coming up. Mullins really wasn't a top prospect, but Mountcastle mm-hmm. was. Uh, he was drafted as a shortstop out of high school. They could just never find a position for him. They finally said, you know what? He hits so well. Let's just teach him first base. He can DH some, and we won't worry about the defense, and we'll just put him in the lineup. And that's exactly what he did last year, and he's going to be a, a 30 to 35 home run guy moving forward. Got a great swing. So those two guys are guys you can at least look at the roster and say, okay, Rutschman's going to be on the team this year. Mountcastle and Mullins are future pieces as well. And I think 2022 is probably the first year where you can start to imagine a lineup of a good Orioles team from picking out of a good chunk of the current lineup. Now, there's a couple other things we need to talk about. Uh, I have up here, I bet baseballreference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. And I'm looking at the the page for the 2021 Baltimore Orioles. Not the best year in Orioles history. I'm sorry you have to look at that page. They uh, they won 52 games. Let's, let's be positive. They won 52 times. Um, they lost 110 times. And that's, I don't know where that ranks as worst Orioles seasons of all time, but uh, it's got to be high up there. Uh, and, of course, no small reason of that is their top pitcher was John Means, and John Means had a fine year, and under the complete game and shutout category, he has one of each, which just happened to have been a no-hitter and was probably the, the highlight of the season for Baltimore fans is the Means no-hitter. Um, after that, file it under yikes. Um, I would agree. The, the late Matt Harvey uh, started 28 games for them. Uh, Lopez, Zimmerman, Kramer, Akin. I may have mispronounced some of these names. And do you know what? That's not so bad. Um, it's Watkins, Wells. Um, yeah, this is uh, Thomas Eshelman. This just is a start. I'm not even going to get into the bullpen. The The rotation for the Orioles is was pretty rough. And the question, and again, that's not anything you don't already know, but the question I have is, would Ruckman be the type of catcher who is a good handler of pitchers? And who do they have of their prospects who are coming up that have a sense of, oh, this is not just going to be a replacement level pitcher, but someone who might actually be able to make a difference? Yeah, that's, that's the really great thing about Adley Rushman that kind of takes him from just really, really good hitting prospect to like elite number one ranked prospect is that he's such a great defensive catcher and he handles the staff really well. You watch him throughout his time in the minor leagues since the Orioles drafted him in 2019. Every inning, every inning after the inning ends, whether it be a ground out, a fly out, he catches a strikeout, whatever it may be, he immediately does not turn and walk towards a dugout. He walks towards the mound. He meets the pitcher about halfway between the mound and the chalk line, and they have a conversation from that point to the dugout. And I've asked multiple Orioles minor league pitchers on the podcast, what are those conversations like? Is it Adley coming up and 
yelling at them about the bad pitches they threw. No, it's them talking through basically every call that he made, every pitch that they threw, and basically formulating their plan, getting a head start on formulating their plan for the next inning. And it's just something small like that that helped a lot of these minor league pitchers this year. He was in double A for half the year, spent the second half of the year in triple A, and seemingly the triple A pitching got better when Adley Rutschman got to triple A last year. And so that's working out. Now, in terms of guys who are coming next, it's interesting because a lot of those names that you mentioned, obviously Matt Harvey's gone and a guy like Jorge Lopez, he's been moved to the bullpen. But a lot of those guys were in their first year in the big leagues last year. Bruce Zimmerman, Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther, uh, Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, they were in their second years in the bigs. But still young, all those guys were top 30 prospects for the Orioles at one point. But the big names that the O's are really counting on is Grayson Rodriguez, who you've mentioned already, number one pitching prospect in baseball, consensus top 10 prospect in the league. He's a right-hander, was a high schooler drafted out of Texas, and throws 97-98, has a really good breaking ball and a ridiculous changeup that, you know, kind of, you know, has you thinking about Felix Hernandez type stuff, the way he used to to throw his changeup and just dominate hitters all day. And Rodriguez has that velocity that Felix had early in his career as well. Um, he's just a special, special pitcher. He's going to start the year in AAA, but he's going to be in the big leagues this year. And then D.L. Hall, who you mentioned, as long as he stays healthy, he's a left-hander who throws 98 to 100 from the left side and has one of the most devastating sliders you're ever going to see. He's the Orioles' second-ranked pitching prospect, another guy they drafted at a high school in Georgia. And he's a guy who, if he stays healthy, he's going to be in the big leagues this year. So they've got these two guys who they think can headline a rotation. You add them to John Means, and you've got at least a nice little set of pitchers. Behind them, you have this group, which a lot of them are guys you named, like Bruce Zimmerman, who had a nice year but got injured. You have some of these fringe prospects. And it's just about the Orioles figuring out which of these guys is going to work and which isn't. Um, but one guy I think that that is kind of making himself heard of a little bit more than that logjam of that group is Kyle Bradish, who actually started the spring training game tonight as we speak, Wednesday night, uh, through two scoreless innings against a Yankees lineup that was basically their regular lineup. Judge Stanton, LeMahieu, the works were in the lineup. Uh, big right-hander throws straight over the top, big 12-6 curveball, 96-97 on the fastball. So They've got some guys. It's just about kind of sorting out who's going to work out and who's not. And unfortunately for the fans of the major league team, the Orioles are going to use this year to basically sort out which of these basically 10 starting pitching prospects are going to be something. And they're going to go through some growing pains. And that's when things might get rough. One of the interesting things about, uh, you mentioned Kyle Bradish for Oriole fans who are grinding their teeth at the concept of familiar players being traded for young players, Bradish was one of the players who was acquired from the Angels when they traded Dylan Bundy to the California Angels or the LA Angels. I keep calling California Angels. Well, they they traded Dylan Bundy there. Um, they got us. They, they kind of traded for quantity as well as quantity. And one of the pitchers they got back was Cal Bradish, who was turned into a top ten prospect for them. So, you know, maybe the front office there is maybe on the verge of something. I also want to point out one thing. Now, again, this is a, it's dangerous when you start comparing pitchers to Hall of Famers. But um, well, I'm going to bring in one pitcher who, you know, is a young pitcher came up in his first year 
you know, if you like to look at wins losses, he went two and seven. His ERA was over five, and he struck out. He didn't have a very good strikeout hitting ratio and a terrible whip in in twelve starts. Uh, another pitcher started this, his career as a young pitcher, going six and fourteen with an ERA of five point six one. Uh, and an, one more pitcher in his first full season, after nine starts, where an ERA over five. I uh, went 7-17 with an ERA close to five and a terrible strikeout to uh, innings pitch ratio. And I just listed Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz. So sometimes you have a player, not everyone bursts onto the scene the way that um, I, I was just going to date myself and say Dwight Gooden and Fernando Valenzuela did. Who burst on the scene? Who, who turned was a great pitcher right out of the gate recently? Let's see who came up last year. Well, well see, the, you know, things they aces don't tend to burst up anymore because they they handle them with such kid gloves that they they don't allow for a season like we had with Fernando Valenzuela and Dwight Gooden that that dynamic rookie year. So maybe you know, so maybe Oriole fans who are looking at this year and think, oh my God, other than John Means, we got a bunch of, of the, we got garbage. You know what? Maybe they're getting their maybe they're getting their growing pains out right now. Yeah, and that's the hope. That's the hope. That is the hope. We're here with Connor Newcomb of Locked On Orioles. I want to read to you what uh, Ben from the Panorama Jazz Brass Band here. Uh, I'm gonna. He he wrote this to me a few days ago. Hey Sully, that's me. In case you're wondering, I'm dropping this year. Although it's off topic, he was he was responding to a, a video I made where I was talking about the Yankees. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, let's not count the Orioles out. So I'll have what he's having. Unlikely to contend this year, but I feel we're rebuilding strong and smart. Okay, I I, I actually agree with them. I, and I think you pointed out that they're, they're piecing this together probably the right way. As a perennial underdog in the AL East, again, strange to read after growing up with them being a powerhouse, I have a bit of chip on my shoulder that people, you included, don't give us the respect or attention we deserve. Okay, Ben, I'm calling you out a little bit on this. When you stink in a 25-year span, okay, and you stink in 21 of them, I'm sorry, you're not going to shoot to the top of my intention chart. You know? It's fair. I mean, it's, it's fair. I mean, I try to bring up as, as many teams as I can. But you know what? I mean, what, oh, looks like the Orioles stink this year. Maybe they'll be more gooder next year. So, I mean, yeah, the chip on your shoulder. Don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. Um, let's see. I really enjoy your show, and I'd be interested in getting your take on the Orioles rebuild and what you think went wrong, went wrong in the Dan Duquette-Buck Showalter era. Uh, I think one thing went wrong was Manny Machado got hurt at the wrong time. I also think that I've never seen – how do I put this delicately? I've never seen a team – have the ball bounce their way more times than the 2014 Royals did in the wild card game where two different innings, they were two outs away from losing to Oakland. They would have been totally forgotten. They won two extra inning games in Anaheim where a ball here bounced here or there. The Angels would have been up to nothing. And then you had two uh, uh, games where things just went their, went their way against Baltimore in Camden Yards when everyone in their moose thought the Orioles were going to clobber them. 
um, that was their year. That was Baltimore's year where everything, especially after Oakland had the bad second half and Anaheim was eliminated in the first round, it was it was a welcome mat to the World Series and Buck Showalter. Uh, Connor, you have a better view of that. Why don't you tell me what you think? Oh, yeah. 2014 was uh, incredibly enjoyable for myself because, listen, this team won the division for the only time I've ever seen, 96 wins. But to be honest with you, it was it was hard. It was hard to watch the ball literally, as you said, bounce every single way that Kansas City could have had it. And it, and you know you look back on that series and you see a sweep by Kansas City and you think, oh, you know, the Orioles must have just got run out by a better team. No. It was it was so, base. I, I don't think it was four one run games, but most of them were by one or two runs. You had a couple of them go to extra innings and just. The bounces they got, you know, you had the Orioles hitting the ball and the screws to every single fielder. Meanwhile, all the Royals runs, except for the Alex Gordon homer in game one, came off a, a dink into shallow right field, you know, a ball that just gets through the infield. It was a frustrating series to watch. And the Orioles were the better team. And Much better. I mean, listen, the Angels we got a, were the better. The A's were better. We got a great the, World Series that year. You we know, did. Not going to deny not. we got seven games, but. Oh man, would I have liked to have seen Baltimore and San Francisco that year? Yeah, uh, just because of how that Orioles team played and the pitching being not great, but being able to play in that San Francisco ballpark where you can hide, you know, the pitching being their weakness a little bit more. You would have had Camden Yards and AT and T Park, which was called AT and T Park back then, which are at least visually the two most beautiful stadiums in baseball. You would have had Bochi and Showalter, and you know. This is the one thing on Showalter's resume that he doesn't have. You know, if he had a World Series title, keep in mind, Weaver only had one. DeRocher only had one. And Showalter, with a World Series title, would have this reputation of being kind of a Johnny Appleseed of contenders. Of course, he he, he leaves the Yankees, they win the World Series the next year. He leaves the Diamondbacks, they win the World Series the next year. He left the Rangers, they get to back-to-back World Series shortly after he leaves. And if we brought uh, Baltimore into the World Series, those other years would have been added to his ledger. Like he left all these organizations in a position where they would become, you know, one Nelson Cruz leap away from being three World Series titles. And uh, and I really felt, I mean, that was just, I mean, I was rooting for the A's. I was in the Bay Area. I got to know one of the players on the A's that year. So I got to go to many of those games. Uh, the Red Sox stunk that year. Uh, so it was, and John Lester wound up getting traded to the A's um, right around the time they fell apart. And so, which meant a lot of people said, well, they made the Lester trade, and that's what, that's when they, that's, that caused them to spiral. I said, no, they didn't spiral because they acquired John Lester. You know, it, it was uh, a bunch of things went wrong in the second half, and they still were uh, a Johnny Gomes collision in the outfield away from winning the wild card game uh i think they probably would have lost anaheim uh and if anaheim had played baltimore you know it would have been it would have been a mike trout versus buck showalter series which would have been good for baseball but i think baltimore would have won that and i i remember watching that baltimore kansas city series in every game the orioles just looked better yep but I thought, yeah, again, I thought the Angels were better too. So I mean, what the heck do I know? Yeah, so, it still hurts. Yeah. And and you know that team you mentioned the Manny Machado injuries. Like they didn't have Machado; he missed most of the season. 
they didn't have Matt Wieters, their starting catcher. He got Tommy right. John surgery in May that year. Right, yeah. I mean, they were rolling Ryan Flaherty out at third base, and they traded for Nick Hundley from San Diego or maybe Colorado to to catch for that team. So I mean, they you know were were down some huge huge players on that team. You know, the guys who were hitting third and fifth basically in that lineup, and they still rolled to a division title, rolled to the ALCS, and it was all over like that. Yeah, I mean, I have that side. But by the way, they had Nelson Cruz on that team. I mentioned Nelson Cruz already. And Cruz had a fabulous season in his lone year in uh, Baltimore. And they crushed uh, the bullpen of the Tigers, who went on 10 years where they said, you know, we don't need a bullpen. And uh, that was, you know, Chris Davis had a god-awful year and yet still hit 26 home runs. Um, yeah, it was a uh, scope was still there. Adam Jones was kind of the marquee player on that team. Um, Mark Kakis was a quality player on that team. And, uh, oh yeah, they had Bud, I forgot Bud Norris and, uh, Chen was a good pitcher. And of course, Zach Britton. Um, what now look at, I can't say the Orioles and Zach Britton without bringing it up. Uh, I don't think Baltimore goes to the ALCS in that year. I don't think I don't know if they would have beaten Texas. Maybe they would have. I don't think they beat Cleveland. Uh but if Show Affair had brought in my my biggest problem with the, the infamous wildcard game is that they when it's an elimination game, you can't play for the save. You can't you if, if Britain came out and threw two or three innings and then you go to Jimenez, then you say, look at we used our best pitcher. We you know we you know but you can't with the game on the line, with the season on the line, every time the ball leaves the fingers of the pitcher, you can't not use your best pitcher. You know, I mean, if you have that weapon, you can't say, oh, we're holding for a save. That save may not come. And it didn't. And everyone in the world knew while it was happening, you know, that every inning they didn't use them was them dodging a bullet like Keanu in the Matrix. And lo and behold, it's like, if you're going to lose, make sure you go down with your sixth best. Um, while uh, Zach Britton was reading Bazooka Joe comics in the bullpen, Yobaldo Jimenez uh, threw a pumpkin to uh, Encarnacion, which I have no evidence ever landed. I don't think it did. And with that was the final meaningful pitch. Do you think psychologically that crushed him, or does, do you think that just... The, the team just kind of fell apart after that. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, there's only one player left from that team. So if you look at it that way, Trey Mancini was a September call-up that year. He actually pinch hit in that game. He's the only player left. So on one hand, you know, the whole staff is different. The GM is different. Manager, you know, all the players are different. Obviously, a lot of the guys who are on the team now are in the minor league system at, at that right. point. But right. it was, I mean, it was tough. And, and here's the other thing, you know, I don't think the Orioles win that game, even if Britain pitches. They did not have a hit after the sixth inning in that game offensively. So at the but end you, of the day, but you have to use all your bullets. Oh, you I'm have sorry. to. You have to. You can't. You can't be up there and having Ubaldo Jimenez pitching to one Encarnacion and his parrot, and have a guy who had a historically great season as a reliever. I remember when when I mean. Stacey got so used to screaming because I'm bringing up the 2004 ALCS again. But when the season was on the line and they were falling apart, they brought in Keith Folk in the seventh inning of one of the games because it was basically, uh, we, we're, our season's over unless we use our best pitchers. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the difference is, I mean, in some ways, the difference between, uh, you know, what happened that year and like go to 2014, Bruce Bochy, you know, bringing in Bumgarner and say, I'm going to have a pitch till his arm falls off is basically that mentality of like, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down. Why didn't you use Madison Bumgarner? Why did you take Madison Bumgarner out? I didn't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes what you have to do in a situation like that. Yeah. And, and it's funny because, you know, it's not like Britain was like this crazy elite closer on a bullpen that was otherwise bad. It was all in all a really good bullpen. So the interesting part about it, you know, you talk about them just kind of living on the edge that entire game. Chris Tillman yeah. pitched five solid, okay innings. And then every reliever came in. You know, you had the the Michael Givens, the Darren O'Day, the Brad Brock, you know, all these guys coming in. All good pitchers. All, all good, good pitchers. pitchers. And yeah. they kept throwing either one or two scoreless innings. And so you almost think, like, if Britain was on a different team where he had to be the guy, maybe Buck would have went to him earlier. But because he had all those good relievers. But then you got to the end. And literally, Ubaldo Jimenez and Zach Britton were, I think, the only two guys left out there. Because they had started the 11th inning with Brian Dunsing, if you remember him, he was a reliever on that team. He came in just to face the lefty, Ezekiel Carrera, struck him out, and then Buck went to the bullpen. And I said, okay, Dunsing had this crazy number in his career where Carrera specifically was like 0 for 12 with 10 strikeouts against him. So the whole story coming in was like, Dunsing will face Carrera once, and that's all he'll do in this game. So Dunsing strikes him out, and you think, okay, it's Zach Britton time. They're going to ride Zach Britton until his arm falls off. And in steps... Ubaldo Jimenez and you just you just couldn't believe it and again you know they didn't have a hit after the sixth would they have scored maybe maybe not but as you said you just you gotta go to Zach Britton and that was the last pitch you know the Orioles they did contend for most of 2017 that's fair enough they were they were a game out of the wild card on September 1st of 2017 they had one of the worst months I've ever seen of baseball in September 2017 ended up winning only 75 76 games that year because September was so bad but even though they competed for most of that season, I mean, obviously that pitch by Jimenez was the last straw, and it's the last image of Orioles postseason baseball that we have, and we're going on six years now. Two questions to ask. Uh, going back to our uh, friend, the jazz musician in New Orleans, uh, what was the one thing you wish they did differently in the Duquette-Showalter collaboration? I would say number one is pay any attention to the international free agent market. They were specifically and outwardly against it at all. And you look around Major League Baseball and how much talent has been signed as 17-year-olds out of the Dominican Republic, out of Venezuela, out of Cuba. They talked about it openly, how they just wouldn't do it. They traded, you know, you can trade the international slot money. They would trade it all the time for, for minor leaguers, essentially. They would get rid of their money. You know, it's not like they it would just sit there and they wouldn't spend it. They would actively trade it away so they couldn't spend there. And, you know, I get that it didn't hurt them right there because those are 16, 17-year-old kids. But you look around at half the stars in the league right now, and they were signed in those 2013, 14, 15, 16 years in international free agency. And the like the number one quote about it is the year that Shohei Otani was coming to Major League Baseball. Dan Duquette was on the radio and he asked, they asked him about it. And he basically said something like, we are philosophically opposed to even getting involved with this and look at who Shohei Otani is now. Would he have signed with the Orioles? No. But to be philosophically opposed to even considering one of the best baseball players in the world to play for your team, 
that is pretty jarring. And obviously there were other issues there. And, you know, Buck probably had too much uh, of a handprint on what went on in like the low minor leagues. And he was always kind of snooping around and, and trying to get things done his way. And, you know, maybe wasn't letting the coaches down at the minor league level, uh, you know, do enough development. But, you know, all that talent that signed with all these other teams, it left the Orioles way behind. They're finally invested there now with Michael Elias taking over, but they're so far behind the eight ball. It's going to take years to catch up. Well, one last question here. Um, we talked about the genius of Earl Weaver. We talked about the cunning of Buck Showalter. Brandon Hyde who is now in his fourth season as the manager of the Orioles. Uh, the first three didn't go that well. Uh, what are your thoughts of him as your long-term solution? Is he, is he the long-term solution or is he the placeholder? Yeah, it's so interesting because if he were managing a team with any expectations, if he had three straight years of you know these seasons that he did, he would not have a managerial job right now. But... With the teams that he has been given, I mean, I don't think there's a manager in the world who could have squeezed more than maybe 65 wins out of the Orioles last year. Maybe even right. 60, you could say. I mean, I don't think anybody could have that, that team last year avoid 100 losses. So at the end of the day, it's so hard to evaluate him because, you know, a lot of Orioles fans try to you know get mad about his bullpen decisions. And my pushback on that is if you looked into the bullpen and two-thirds of the arms down there were 34-year-old journeymen who are making their finally making their major league debuts. And a couple of the other guys are rookies who are still trying to figure out how to pitch out of the bullpen. And you essentially have two pitchers who you can rely on in the pen. You can't throw them every day. What would your bullpen management look like? You know, you would blow some leads too because there's just no right answer. And so I really think this year is the first time where we can really evaluate him. He he originally signed a three-year contract after they hired him. He was the Cubs bench coach uh, under Joe Madden, and they hired him for a three-year contract. They upped it and extended it one year. So he's currently only under contract through 2022. I think this is the first year where you can really evaluate him, not because the Orioles will have a lot of talent on the field, because as we know from looking at their roster, they won't. But what they will have finally is all these top prospects I talked about coming to the big leagues this year. And you'll get to see how Hyde manages those guys, handles those relationships, because there is a young up-and-coming manager knocking on the door. His name is Buck Britton. Funny enough, he is the older brother of Zach Britton. He is going to be the manager in AAA Norfolk this year in the Oriole system. And every single person that works for the Oriole system loves Buck Britton, and a lot of people think he's the future manager. So... Britain will be in AAA this year. If the development process doesn't go well with Hyde, I like Brandon Hyde, but I think there could be a change made heading into 2023. Fair enough. Well, look at we've devoted 40 some odd minutes talking about the Baltimore Orioles. Who there you says go, everyone. For the Orioles. And you know what? I may devote most of these episodes to the development of the Orioles because this is it. 2022. It's been too long. It's been way too long since a parade has happened for the Baltimore Orioles. We're approaching 40 years. So with that in mind, I think I'm going to go to bet online and put it all down on the Orioles to win it all in 2022. And you can sing your Dixieland to that. Hey, uh, Connor Newcomb, where can people follow your podcast? Uh, they can check out Locked on Orioles wherever you get this podcast, Apple, Spotify. We're on YouTube now as well. So check out the Locked on Orioles YouTube page. 
uh, and subscribe and follow the podcast at Locked On Orioles on Twitter as well. All right. And for us, you can follow us at Locked On MLB Pods. Same handle for Instagram. I'm your pal Sully. I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter, Sully Baseball Podcast. Whoops. Hit the wrong button there for those of you watching on YouTube. Hey, um, thanks so much for listening. This has been Locked On MLB for the 24th day of March. 2022 approaching opening day and the day where Royal fans will wake up and see their team tied for first place. The magic number is 163. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me 